but what, what a story that Austin has just read for us. Jesus tells us about an unnamed rich man and a man that we have a name for, a man named Lazarus, who was a poor man. It's quite an interesting and rather unusual feature of a story, especially for that time period where a name is used to bestow dignity upon a man who was poor and upon a a man who in this life suffered greatly. And while obviously this story has at times been used throughout the history of the church to outline precisely what the afterlife looks like, probably including details like the temperature of the flames in hell, I'm joking kind of, but, but people are drawing a lot of conclusions about what the afterlife looks like based on this story Jesus tells. But it seems to me that the point of a story like this, in addition to the great reversals that take place in the kingdom of God, which is something we're going to talk about in just a few moments. But I think the point, or at least part of the point of a story like this, is not so much about what the afterlife is going to look like, but has a lot more to do with how we approach life today in terms of our wealth or our lack thereof. This is an idea that James turns his attention to in chapter 5. Now, one of the common criticisms of a book like James is that it is perhaps lacking in the theology department. I mean, we don't find a lot of explicit or systematic treatment of doctrine in this book. James doesn't talk about some of those central components of the Christian faith like resurrection. When you compare James with maybe the writings of Paul, James seems pretty straightforward, if not harsh at times, but pretty straightforward and really practical. But I think as we've noticed over the past several months working our way through this book that there are some deep theological truths that James develops that I believe we should allow to guide and shape our spiritual development. And perhaps that is most clearly seen in the close connection between James, between the words that he is speaking or writing, the themes that he develops, and the words of Jesus. Now, at the beginning of this series, I mentioned that I am of the opinion that it's quite possible that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this letter. I don't hang my faith on that opinion. There are plenty of people who disagree on that fact, but even if it wasn't James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote this letter, whoever wrote it was clearly very familiar with the teachings of our Lord. The section that we're going to read today, as well as the one we'll read last week, but the one today is what we're concerned with, beginning in chapter 5, is another one of those instances where the reliance on the teachings of Jesus is undeniable. I believe that's my daughter, so if you (laughs) notice that I'm distracted, that's why, and I apologize. So let's read, beginning in James chapter 5, verse 1. This transition up to the big girl class that she was so excited about. I think a little of that excitement has worn off. (laughs) James 5 verse 1. We're we're really going to go from laughter to something else. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So once again, the language that is employed by our author is rather intense. Mentioned a couple of weeks ago that eventually it's going to ease up a bit and we're going to find some encouraging words 
from James, but over the past couple of months, it's been pretty heavy. So not quite yet. However, what we are working towards this morning, um, after these words of warning and condemnation, what we're working towards is a message of encouragement for those who might be enduring hardship in this context at the hand of uh, the people he is warning here, the rich landowners and farmers. Let's continue reading in verse 2. Your riches have rotted. And your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So this is really vivid, maybe disturbing imagery that serves to shock the audience and make a point. I mean, this sounds pretty similar in some respects to the rhetoric that we find throughout the Hebrew prophets. I mean, if you think James is intense here, you should read through a book like Amos at some point. That's the tradition. That's the rhetoric that James seems to be drawing from to announce this great reversal that will take place similar to the one we find in the story Austin read that Jesus told about Lazarus. Now, some will argue that this message that we read in James, enlightened with some of the prophetic tradition, is specifically meant for pagans who are exploiting people within the community of faith. And I think it does, in that context, apply to that group of people, but I think it's a little broader than that. I think that would be putting too fine of a point on the issue, because I think what we find here is a declaration about what the future will look like for everybody who puts their hope in earthly riches. And James says, get ready to weep. Your, your life has been nothing but ease, nothing but trampling over others, but that's not going to last forever. First of all, it won't last forever because there is a definite end to your riches. They don't last forever. Eventually, and this may occur after you pass to the next life, but eventually, as Jesus argues in Matthew chapter 6, moths are going to eat the stuff you prize so much and rust will destroy it. So echoing Jesus' words, James says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because they are transitory. They don't last. But richness towards God, those treasures that are associated with the values of the kingdom of God, those can't be destroyed. We talked briefly about this last week. So James is arguing, don't pursue the wrong things. Make sure your priorities are pure and in the right place, lest you discover at the end of your life that you spent your entire life pursuing empty vanities. It was all a waste because I can't cling to or hold the stuff that I was chasing. But for James, perhaps even more critical than that realization than the realization that your entire life was wasted in the rat life, rat race, rat life. Perhaps even more critical or at least critical is that realization is the discovery that at times maybe your wealth led you to degrade and exploit others. And so James begins condemning some very specific practices in verse 4 where he says this, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields... 
which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So James says, look, you own all of this land. And really, you rely on others to maintain that property and to help increase your profits, but then you go and withhold the wages that they have rightly earned, wages that they need to live through just another day. So understand that the work of harvesting, the the work of a day laborer who is employed by a farmer or a landowner in the first century, was typically very much a subsistence lifestyle. You work, you make enough money for that day, but not much beyond that. You're not making enough to stash a little bit away for a rainy day. Furthermore, the system of credit at, at the time wasn't anything like it is today. It wasn't accessible to all or even most. So if a harvester didn't receive payment that they had earned, they likely wouldn't be eating that day, maybe the next day. They don't have the option, like many of us have, of saying, well, I'm a little behind this month. I can't pay for groceries or gas, so I'm just going to put that on a credit card. And then next month, I'm going to be uh, really serious about tightening the belt a little bit to get back ahead. It wasn't an option. So James's warning is, look, you are living in luxury, self-indulgence, you're fattening yourselves while those who are absolutely dependent on you for fair wages, those who are dependent on you for fair treatment are suffering and can't make it through the day because you just have to have even that infinitesimal bump in profit. Maybe this sounds similar to the corporate America that we know. And I think as Individuals who are living in a a really wealthy nation, I think this is something that we can learn from this text, not only on, on a corporate level, but also on an individual level as we are being shaped by some of these values that run the country that we are in. James says, hear this announcement. Hear this announcement. The current arrangement won't last forever. It won't last forever. A day is coming where the world, where all of its classes of people and all of its economies are turned upside down because the cry of the one who is at the bottom of the ladder has reached the Lord. Now, to be fair, what we find here, I don't think it is an outright condemnation of wealth. Wealth isn't the problem per se, but what we do with it How we use it or how we don't use it is the problem. And I think one of the things that James is highlighting in this passage is that wealth will always be an obstacle to Christian discipleship. That was the case in the first century for the earliest followers of Jesus, and I believe it's still the case today. Wealth is an obstacle to Christian discipleship. It doesn't mean that we can't have money and follow Jesus, but it does mean that we at least need to be aware of the unique challenges that we face in developing a robust faith if we have wealth. As Jesus insists in Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, we read this, And Jesus said to his disciples, 
Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. What? You can't have money and be a part of the kingdom of heaven? The disciples are aghast. What, what do you mean? But then who can be a part of this kingdom that you speak of? Jesus says, well, there's good news for you because what is impossible for humans is possible with God. And then he goes on at the end of that section to suggest that many who are first in this life will be last in the one to come, and many who are last now will be first. So we find this recurring message that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus announces and brings into existence is one of great reversals. So this raises a, an important question, I think, for us. If wealth isn't necessarily the problem, and if with God even the wealthy can inherit the kingdom, what do we do with a section like this in James? What do we take away? How do we allow these themes to direct us into deeper discipleship? And I think there are a few simple, actually rather difficult, but at least they sound simple, ways that we can make this a reality. And I think it begins with the requirement that is placed on all of us of generosity. Generosity. This is a constant theme throughout our scriptures. It's in the Old Testament makes its way into the law that Moses passes along to the people of Israel. It's all over the place in the prophets, especially in the minor prophets, where they're returning to this theme time and time again, the idea that our wealth we have been blessed with is not just for us. We are obligated as followers of Jesus to use our resources to work towards justice, to work towards the well-being of others, and the growth of God's kingdom reign. This is not an option that we can add on to our spirituality if we feel so inclined. But if we are following Jesus, this is an obligation. In Luke chapter 12, a passage that in many respects mirrors what we find in Matthew 6, where Jesus is talking about the treasures of our heart. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this, Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart, there will your heart be also. Sell your possessions and give to the needy, he says. And what is the basis for that instruction? Well, it's the idea that your bank account simply doesn't last forever. Now, I think in addition to the explicit instructions of generosity, one practical way that we can grow in our willingness to adopt an attitude that Jesus encourages in regard to how we approach our wealth is through disciplined self-denial. And this is why I think it becomes clear that habitual self-denial in every area of life can be a worthwhile spiritual discipline. It serves as a constant reminder 
that I don't need to keep getting more and more and more. I don't need the equivalent of an all-you-can-eat buffet in every area of life. You know, where you show up at 10 a.m. for lunch and just continue shoveling food into your mouth until 3 p.m. and they close the doors. Do you know what I'm saying? I think of my life. If I don't put limits and restraints on some of my desires, it doesn't take long for some of those desires to get out of control, turn the tables on me, and begin controlling me. This is a lesson that we are trying to teach our three-year-old who was screaming a moment ago, that the idea of delayed gratification, you don't get everything you want. In fact, I've used that exact phrase. A few months ago, I used that phrase, and her response was, yeah, I do. So clearly, there is a lot of work that needs to go into these lessons. But you don't get everything you want, and you don't get it right now. But I think those lessons need to probably continue even after childhood because those basic instincts don't disappear as we age. We have to train ourselves to control them. And obviously self-denial isn't fun. It's not enjoyable and maybe even in the moment doesn't seem beneficial, but I think in the long run, after years and years of practicing this discipline of denying ourselves, I think it will serve us well on a personal level. George Mueller, who's a 19th century British thinker, he put it this way. He said, self-denial is not so much an impoverishment as a postponement. We sacrifice present good for a future greater good. But I think what we need to keep in mind as we think about that idea is that the future, greater good that we're sacrificing today for may not be a greater physical object or possession. It might be increased personal character and virtue, which is far more valuable than any possession we could hope to acquire. So self-denial, whether we are talking about something like fasting a meal or simplifying in any other area of life, I think self-denial reminds us that life is more than that meal which seems like a big deal in the moment. Life is more than that new trinket that we want. And of course, we know that in theory, but it's easy to forget in practice. And it doesn't mean that you can't treat yourself, right? It doesn't mean that you can't go out and enjoy a a nice dinner on occasion or somehow that that type of a meal is less holy than staying at home and eating peanut butter and jelly for every meal. I think there's a time and a place for both. It's about achieving some sense of balance and I think one thing that helps us achieve some of that balance that we seek is habitual self-denial. G.K. Chesterton rightly suggested that, and I just use this to get Ed's attention, but that there are two ways to get enough. There are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. And only one of those, I think, is sustainable. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's great advice. Desire less. I can just flip a switch and automatically my desires will change. I mean, aren't my desires natural and innate and I'm just striving to manage them to the best of my ability? Sure, to some degree, I think that's the case, but I also think that these practices that cause us to go without 
for a time or to go without for a season, I think those practices in a concrete way help us realize that I don't need it all, that I can get by with less. And through years of this discipline, through years of this focused denial, I think it's possible that our desires in the end might begin changing. In that passage that we looked at in Luke a moment ago, Jesus began with this statement, Fear not, little flock. Your Father is delighted to give you the kingdom. So while today may feel really hard and you may experience great needs, be patient. So this is, ooh, excited. I like it. <laughs> Keep it coming. James also shifts in his thinking. So the, the chapter began with a condemnation of the wealthy landowners and farmers, and now he's transitioning to this word of encouragement for those who are being abused at their hands. Verse 7, he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James now specifically addresses those members of the congregation, who, th those within the fold of God who are weak and poor, those who are suffering at the hands of the rich landowners in this context, and his instruction to them is be patient. Be patient, for the day of the Lord is coming. There is an end in sight. You have suffered. Maybe you're currently suffering, and you might suffer more in the future. You've been taken advantage of and abused, but keep hope, because eventually things will improve. Just hold on. Be patient, because as our Lord demonstrated in the story he told about Lazarus and the rich man, the current arrangement doesn't last. There will be a great reversal where the first become last and where the last become first. And that is a reality that makes those who are at the top today pause and reflect upon their lives and reflect upon what is truly important in this life. And it's a reality that makes those at the bottom of the ladder hold on to hope because their current lot won't last forever. And James compares this reality to the situation a farmer faces. He plants seed and then waits day after day looking for that plant to sprout. And then even after the plant has sprouted, the waiting continues as that small plant has to grow and become a mature plant that produces a crop. And James says, likewise, and I know this is difficult, but you too be patient. And as you wait for your position to improve, the instruction is establish your heart. 
Establish your heart. Remember that God alone is the judge and he can be trusted. So don't allow your heart to grow, your heart to grow dark with hatred toward, the, toward those who have hurt you. And don't let the difficulty that you're presently facing bring out the worst in you, which is a great temptation. Have you ever had that experience where it's really easy to lash out if you're hungry or tired or experiencing financial difficulty or experiencing some kind of pain? James says you, you probably need to be extra vigilant in guarding your heart when you're enduring great difficulty. So... I understand that what you're facing is hard, but don't grumble against one another. Keep your hearts pure. Stay focused on what is important. Like our call to worship this morning from Psalm 37, the message is, as you are patient, and in the face of suffering, as you are patient, you may be tempted to envy the wealth, to envy the success of those who lord it over you, but don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into the trap of envying what the wealthy have because those wealth, that, that wealth doesn't last. But then he provides an alternative warning and says, don't go to the other extreme either where you are looking forward to their judgment that they will face and hope that they face just a fraction of the pain you have faced. This is work to guard your heart and maintain a spirit that desires redemption for all. And he says, remember Job. Job faced unprecedented difficulty. And his questions about the nature of God overwhelmed him at times. And he felt the sting of God's absence. James says, learn from him. Remain steadfast, and you, in the end, you too will be blessed. You might not, probably won't be blessed like Job was blessed as he had that fortune returned. You, you might not be best blessed like you expect to or like you hope to be, but God is walking beside you, and he cares for you, and he loves you deeply. Don't let your present circumstances confuse you on that point. Remain patient. Remain patient. We're going to conclude by sharing this meal at the Lord's table, sharing Holy Communion. And as we prepare to do that, I, I wanted to share this piece of a proverbial thought, a piece of wisdom from the Desert Fathers it went like this. It said, only the devil disguising himself as Christ has no wounds, being too vain to bear them. So as we reflect upon the message that James has communicated at the beginning of chapter 5 today, and as we move towards the Eucharist, we have another example that we can look to as we seek to remain patient, and that is Jesus of Nazareth who we remember, who we celebrate, who we encounter in this Eucharistic meal. One who was no stranger to suffering at the hands of the evil and powerful, and yet who patiently endured, who kept hope, even when the darkness obscured the sense of God's presence. 
So we conclude with this thought from James. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. He will be with you even as you suffer. He will walk with you even though you might be stumbling. Would you stand this morning? As we prepare to share this meal, this meal through which we find nourishment, through which we find what we need to make it through another day, we pray. Jesus, today, would you open our hearts? Would you open our hearts and our minds to know you as the suffering servant who walks beside us in our seasons of pain and hurt? Would you strengthen us to remain faithful, to keep hope, to be patient in our circumstances when they weigh us down? Lord Jesus, we also pray that in times of plenty, times of success, times of ease and comfort, that we would keep our hearts pure, that we would be generous to those in need. May we follow your example to carry the weight of our brothers and sisters. Jesus, we invite you into the deep parts of our lives to convict us of sin, to provide hope moving forward. We trust that you are meeting us in this meal. Amen. We invite you to join us. If you're visiting, please come and join us. It's uh, not limited to those who are a part of our congregation or a part of a particular tradition or denomination. And it is Christ himself who invites you. Would you come?